Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and Brendan Ross, programmer of the Neon Dream Cinema Club. September 6th, 1994 came and went without the world ending. So did September 29th and then October 2nd. It must have been a great disappointment to have the several dozen individual prophets, psychics, and just regular folks who got really interested in the pyramids at Giza that predicted that the world was going to end in a blaze of glory involving comets, earthquakes, and floods. Now, in the research I've done, I can't figure out exactly why everyone from the notorious Montreal-headquartered Order of the Solar Temple to engineer-turned-profit Harold Camping decided to mark 1994 as the year it would all be over. But there was something in the air. And this, of course, was also reflected in the movies that were being made at the time. We'd have to wait till 1998 gave us an actual movie titled Armageddon, which, of course, would reignite the nation's thirst for disaster movies. But as in both our movies today, perhaps the end of the world wasn't kicked off by one cataclysmic incident. Perhaps it would be something as simple as Sam Neill as a badass noirian insurance fraud investigator piecing together paperback novel covers to discover a map to ground zero of the coming apocalypse in John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Cam! Cam, do you want to walk us through this Lovecraft Carpenter practical effects fest? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, <laughs> I love this I one. I just got to so. say, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of this era of Carpenter. Okay. Uh, th- th- this era, <laughs> Memoirs of an Invisible Man, this movie, <laughs> all the bigs. Uh, yeah. Um, well, first, I, I do want to say, uh, we as we always have these weird caveats. This movie is kind of a 1995 movie, but it's 1994 generally because it was a festival release. It was meant to be released in September 1994, and perhaps they lost confidence in it because it got bumped to <laughs> February 1995. Uh, but um, yes, so uh, in the mouth of madness, this film follows, as you say, Sam Neill as a insurance uh, investigator who is sent to find a missing writer named Sutter Kane, uh, kind of a loose Lovecraft slash Stephen King, though Stephen King is in this universe, uh, writer, uh, who has disappeared, um, and his publisher, uh, Charlton Heston, <laughs> wants him back. He's also missing his, his book that they want very badly, they've been promoting. Sam Neill, as you say, ends up figuring out he's probably in this town, which may not be on a map, uh, and they and him and uh, his oh god I don't even know what she is editor I guess uh, I think it's his editor who appears to be so much more yeah than yeah uh, <laughs> she's a very committed editor yes uh, a lady uh, they drive to this town which is the fictional town from his book Hobbs End and slowly you know things get crazier and crazier it should be said that I guess this film starts uh, like in media res with uh, 
Sam Neill being taken to an insane asylum. So this is also the tale of how he went insane. Carpenter says that he likes that it's it was a very old timey script in that it's somebody in an asylum being like, and this is how I went insane. Is unhinged Sam Neill everybody else's favorite Sam Neill? Because it's certainly mine. Like there's crotchety Sam Neill and there's unhinged Sam Neill. And I'm very I think it's Sam Neill's favorite Sam Neill, if that matters. Yeah, and in this one, you get both. (laughs) True. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Does anyone else love that they have mixed the genres of noir and Lovecraft to make, like, noir craft? You know, I always point people to the much-forgotten cast of Deadly Spell, the weird HBO movies that are like Lovecraft, Cthulhu plus a detective. Also, Paul Schrader's sequel to that. Have you seen that? Yeah. They're not bad. They're both good, I think. <laughs> it always seems like one that I'm like, why doesn't HBO, that's presumably they have the rights to it, yeah. just make more of them. More Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but for perverts. <laughs> for monsters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, it. that is definitely uh, Carpenter, right? It's like monsters, but for, you know, gore hands and perverts. Let's yes. do this. Yeah. And I think the thing with Carpenter in this one is that um, this is technically considered the last great Carpenter movie, which I think it kind of like sits on that border for me. It's part of his Apocalypse trilogy, which he refers to it as, um, which would include The Thing and Prince of Darkness. Prince of Darkness is very similar to this movie. This feels Mm. almost like a comedic mirror version of Prince of Darkness. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, uh, it's, I think in uh, recent years, some people have added his later films to the cult canon. I know that, like, uh, Ghost of Mars really isn't as bad as people said it was when it first came out. Yeah. Vampires is. Vampires is that bad. (laughs) The, The one thing I will say though is I often want to remind people that like I think vampires nowadays we just can't watch it partially because of James Woods. Yeah. James uh, Woods and Daniel but, Baldwin, um, two of the right. <laughs> fair, fair. Right, right, right. Yes. Uh, but I think at the time vampires was pretty huge. Really? And this one n- nobody cared about. So it's kind of like weird that this one is now propped up and vampires is like, well, that's one mm-hmm. of the bad ones. Now, why do you think nobody cared about this? Because like this is Sam Neill at like kind of the height of his stardom. Now he's like, you know, a lovely oddity who pops up in people's movies who are like, oh, I know who Sam Neill is. He was in Jurassic Park and Jurassic Park is two years away from this. So like he's still, you know, kind of primo from that. No, it's what this happened? year. It, it was 1993. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. It was, uh, this is after Jurassic Park. Yeah. Yeah. It's like just after. So like he was. Still That's part of why that. he he uh, like he he wanted Sam Neill and nobody wanted Sam Neill. But then Jurassic Park happened and he was like, here, yeah. <laughs> now you have to have Sam Neill. Because <laughs> it's why minister. he's allowed to be uh, use his accent too. Is he? He was allowed to do whatever the hell he wanted. Because he kind of goes in and out of American and Australian. Like, it's, or he's, he's, is he New Zealand or Australian? He's New Zealand. He's New Zealand. Yeah. Sorry, my apologies. Um, one accent is evil. One is not. Yeah. See, we have these photographs of your wife tooling around town wearing various articles that you claim were destroyed in the fire. He definitely is going in and out to the point where I wasn't totally sure. I think when he's going full Bogart noir is when he loses the accent. But then when he starts to go unhinged, he does. Um, He screams so well in this movie. I think one of my favorite lines that he's got is, I'm sorry about the balls. It was a lucky shot, that's all. I laughed so hard. And the other thing I learned about this is that he thought this was a comedy and played the whole thing as a comedy, which makes sense looking at it like that and that the tone is a little unusual for this kind of film yeah i mean it works i think yeah absolutely i think it i think it works it's uh i mean i think one of the funniest things is uh he is such a skeptic but he's a skeptic to the point where it's just it's (laughs) it's almost 
too much. Like he's skeptical of <laughs> everything that happens in the movie. He's the kind of guy that like if somebody were to be like, make sure you look both ways before crossing the street, he'd be like, oh, brother, give me a break. Like he's kind of that kind of a guy that like nothing, absolutely nothing will <laughs> will sink in for him. Yeah. But he seems like a character who's very much in his own world as well, because how can he not be aware of who Sutter Kane is when we are shown this world is all Sutter Kane? It's on every yeah. billboard. There's like posters everywhere. It's very weird. He's not even aware yeah, of the I don't name. think there's a brick wall in this world that doesn't have a Sutter Kane poster <laughs> on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i also i uh, yeah i'm kind of fascinated to like this movie's obviously obsessed with like paperback horror cover art and and as as big as i remember the, that being in the era i don't remember there being like giant posters everywhere of every single stephen king book but maybe uh, maybe i was too young i do like that stephen king exists in this world as you mentioned mm-hmm. cam that but they're like yeah yeah, yeah fuck that guy you know? <laughs> yeah. sutter kane outsells everybody it's pretty great I think the guy that writes that horror crap. Maybe he's too sophisticated for you. Sutter Kane happens to be this century's most widely read author. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. Um, it is it is an interesting world they've built, and we've talked about how it kind of sits on Lovecraftian principles, and then it kind of adds like the peanut butter to the chocolate of of noir. Um, does anyone kind of want to talk about how this movie came to be? Because this was a script originally written in the '80s when like no one was thinking about Lovecraft. Yeah, he was uh, Carpenter was yes. offered it in the '80s, and he turned it down. Uh, he was not interested, mm-hmm. and I think from then it went on to <laughs> Mary Lambert, who did uh, Pet Cemetery, mm-hmm. uh, Tony Randall, who did uh, Hellraiser 2, which is actually interesting because I think Tony Randall also, he did the special effects for Escape from New York, so it was all kind of in the same world. Oh. I would have wanted to see Mary Lambert's version yeah. of this because I love Pet Cemetery, Like, I love Pet Cemetery, and I think she would have brought like a really creepy etherealness to this you wouldn't have the sense of humor but you would definitely have like the otherworldliness yeah i'd assume that she also would have put a bit more focus on julie carmen's character just maybe just maybe (laughs) (laughs) yeah so he was offered it and then he turned it down did he say why he turned it down if i want to guess personally i think that he didn't love it Ah. because he's like apparently there's a there's a copyright battle because he rewrote the script with evgenia sitkowitz um after when they started doing it uh so i think the thing is so like brendan could talk a bit more about it but it's written by michael deluca who was an executive at the time who had been trying to get it made since the 80s he started off interestingly to talk about stephen king he was one of the dollar baby people he made the first version of the lawnmower man (laughs) in a short film for a dollar um but so he'd been trying to make it for a while he was a new line executive horror was pretty dead in 1994 like you know jason was in hell Freddy was back with New Nightmare, but he was meta, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but anyway, so I think Carpenter d- didn't love it potentially. But you have to remember too that Carpenter had just done Memoirs of an Invisible Man, which was his highest budget and biggest flop up until this flop. <laughs> Sam <laughs> Neill was in Madness. that too, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, so I think that Carpenter was kind of on his heels. I think Michael DeLuca could make this script happen if somebody would do it. So I think Carpenter was like, this is Carpentery enough. Give it to me. I'll rewrite it and I'll make it my own thing. 
Now, what was up with DeLuca? Brendan, you you said that he's got some weird stuff going on over there. Yeah, Michael DeLuca is a real uh, Hollywood bad boy, I guess, or at least that's what he, that's the uh, image that he wanted to portray. He purports himself to be. <laughs> <laughs> I, I first knew about him because his name was all over Boogie Nights. Uh, he was the producer of Boogie Nights. He was kind of a, a hotshot New Line executive that uh, he produced in addition to Boogie Nights. I think he did Austin Powers, Social Network, a lot of Oscar-nominated films. And uh, I guess that gave him the power to kind of do whatever he wanted in Hollywood. So he was kind of at the at the tip of a lot of scandals. One particular one that apparently at some swanky Hollywood party, he engaged in a very public sexual act that I think got him in a lot, <laughs> well, seemingly got him in a lot of trouble, but like trouble in that Hollywood way that he had a meeting and then after that it was fine. <laughs> and uh yeah. it's it's weird to me because like everyone always talks about how debaucherous Hollywood parties are mm-hmm. and then you're like, Yeah, 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 but this seems like wouldn't that be par for the course according to what mm-hmm. the tabloids want you to think? Yeah, I absolutely I know that he had definitely had a track record of just very self-destructive behavior, and I think there was a lot of substance abuse, um, and I guess he cleaned up his act. Now he's a producer of, he produces the Oscars, I think, every year. Yeah, that's producer jail, though. That's where you go when you're like, <laughs> all right, I'm going to put on the show for everybody yeah. else. I don't get to make the actual <laughs> Yeah, you're in trouble. Either. We're going to punish you by making you in charge of the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> um, but And everyone will criticize the show, yes. <laughs> but before that, he was just kind of this like comic book nerd that wrote this script in the 80s and I guess was shopping around for a long time and it just never really landed anywhere and I'm guessing because this being a new line picture once he became kind of climbed the ranks at new line he was given the power to actually get this made Um, and uh, you can kind of see why it was passed around a lot I mean it's a fascinating script but it's pretty incomprehensible I'd say there's not a lot of it doesn't tie up any loose ends it doesn't uh, there's not a lot of callbacks it's just it's a it's kind of just all over the place. It seems very stream of consciousness. Um, I'm curious to know what you what you think of the script. I, I agree. I think it works well partially. Like, I think the filmmaking exactly. makes it work uh, because you need to. You're right. It's it's kind of nonsense. The movies we're talking about today both are arguably nonsense. <laughs> but it's like, can you make that spooky? Uh, and this one, yeah, I think it really does. I, I, there's also this problem that I wonder about. Uh, like no, not knowing the difference between his script and Carpenter's uh, final one, there's uh, they were trying to make it really yeah. cheap as well. Like one thing, uh, like I think, kind of stinks in it is I I do think a lot of the creatures look a little stupid, uh, and apparently that's you don't partially... like meatball muncher. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, I, partially their budget was cut from fifteen million dollars to eight million dollars. Apparently, like very kind of late in the game, and Carpenter had wanted to do more CGI because they have a little work with ILM, um, but th- there's a lot of K and B, just like rubber suit monsters, which I think Carpenter embraced by the end. He's pretty excited about it in those behind the scenes things i think he just likes old monster movies but if you even compare it to the thing a lot of the effects look like garbage and just aren't scary you know and i think that's part of the problem is that this film has some genuinely frightening images so one of my favorite character Mm. actors francis bay is in this uh who many people would know is like happy gilmore's grandmother she's kind of those like ubiquitous old ladies she was albertan did you know that yeah yeah, i I knew that just through doing research on it apparently she also was uh fonzie's grandmother in uh yeah (laughs) in happy days so apparently she's just always so she was an old lady for a long time yeah yeah Yeah. well remember that they 
make women grandmothers at 40. Well, that's true. Right? Too. Yeah, so yeah, just keep that in Especially mind. Especially in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I like, some, like going back to the imagery, like the her standing at the desk because she plays the hotel owner and she's got the nude man chained to her like mm-hmm. ankle. There's something very disturbing about that image. And then you see her kind of yeah. stomp down on the guy and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, that's upsetting. So like the, it has little moments where you're like, no, that's really solid and kind of fun. Um, but then you add in, yeah, get the silliness. I think it, I think the, the movie has a tonal problem because it isn't sure if it's a comedy. It isn't sure if it's meant to be over the top. Um, and I think that's why Lovecraft really didn't become a thing until kind of modern times is that no one really knew how to produce the films properly. In the 70s, they tackled it a few times. Yeah, I mean, I think Lovecraft is still, and it's you see it exactly in this, what we're talking about with Meatball Muncher, is like Lovecraft works because it's like, here's an indescribable horror, yeah. and then it doesn't work in a movie because then you're like, here he is, it's Meatball Muncher. <laughs> and you're like, oh boy. Uh, so yeah, I mean, in the, in the like 60s and 70s, some of the earliest Lovecraft movies are usually like, literally an invisible monster attacking people and then yeah then it was down to like and it still weirdly doesn't work all the time because it's like it's yeah it's the horror of the uncanny as they say where it's like it's just hard to represent and and you can try with cgi too and it doesn't help you that much (laughs) as we've seen but uh yeah i I don't know it's like full moon is kind of the people who do it all yeah Yeah. some of the practical effects are kind of shoddy uh but I do think that that makes it shoddy practical effects age so much better than shoddy CGI. And I feel like if it was more mm-hmm. CGI heavy, it would look way jankier oh, yeah. today. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think the other issue, too, that you brought up is that this doesn't make a lot of sense. No. Like, you can kind of wrap it around mm-hmm. your head and go, like, sorry, yeah. what happened? Um, and supposedly they had to recut it repeatedly to be like, okay, this is reality. This is in his head. This is happening. This is not. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's multiple recuts out there trying to make it more sensical. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm kind of cool just to go along with, like, it's all in Sam Neill's head and that he's then watching a movie of himself and we're kind of there with him. And everyone will, of course, know that of Sam Neill in his like hospital scrubs <laughs> eating popcorn. I think that's yeah. probably like it's got to be in the like the top 20 of most used gifts oh on the God. internet. Is everybody uses that? I'm sure nobody knows what movie yeah. it's from, but everybody <laughs> I, I actually know that because I've googled um, I googled that gif image and I saw a lot of Google of uh, I guess Yahoo questions of people being like what movie mm. is <laughs> yeah. Sam Neill in his crucifix pajamas eating popcorn from? <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I have a question about the crucifixes. So why does he cover everything in crucifixes and think that's going to protect him? Because the bad guy is literally hiding in a church. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get understand. any answers from us, I don't think, on that. Um, oh, okay. No, I don't think we know the cosmic horror stuff. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I don't ask for much. Just explanations of everything I do not understand. I mean, <laughs> Please, of go all ahead. the things that I crave while watching this movie logic is pretty low on the totem pole i think so i'm yeah. i'm pretty yes. like you said i'm yeah. i'm very happy to just go along if you want to wear crucifixes on your pajamas and go to eat, go watch the movie that we're also watching uh that's fine with me also that particular scene have i have never just watching it the other day i've never missed movie theaters more <laughs> yeah because yeah. you're not it's not just that you're watching someone you know you're not, you're not just watching sam neil laughing maniacally in a theater he's also watching the same movie that i'm watching on my couch mm. it just didn't seem fair i'm like no i want to be in that position <laughs> god damn it someone else make I me wish, popcorn i, I am not good at microwaves <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and I, the interesting thing is, I think 
I'm shocked that they bothered to try to like make sense of it because I think the best parts are the kind of weird like you talk about the old lady like the unexplained kind of book stuff like you know I you just assume that one of these creeps is a creep from the books and and I also think that the camera tricks and stuff that disorient you are the best parts mm-hmm. of this movie like Brendan I know you said that you really love the weird kid on the bike which I think is the yeah, best bit. Yeah, it, it definitely is. That is, I have a real emotional connection to that scene. Um, just to take you back, I watched this film for the first time when I was at a sleepover party and oof, I was probably like 12 or 13, like way too, way Aww, too young. This is like the perfect and sleepover yeah, movie it, to scar it really child. Was. I, uh, I <laughs> yeah. was very invested in it. But yeah, that moment where you saw what was basically a young teenage boy uh, trapped inside a the soul of an old gray-haired man that looked kind of a bit like John Carpenter, which I, I don't think that part resonated with me at the time. But uh, now I'm like, oh yeah, it kind of looks like wild-haired John Carpenter on a bike. Uh, but yeah, that how it kept on repeating that scene, and then it kind of got a little bit spookier every time. And the next thing you know, that old man is on the windshield. I remember being so scared. Uh, I could not shake that image of that man. And I remember like later on that night when my friends were like, all right, we're going to bed. I was like, right, yeah, sleep. <laughs> and I just stayed up all night long <laughs> pretending to be asleep. <laughs> It's, yeah. it's funny I'm gonna go off tangent just for a second because my experience with that was Exorcist 3 <laughs> and all I could see was the yep, woman crawling exactly on the ceiling about. oh Fair. man it's wild how those movies just get into your brain and, and it's like with stuff that as an adult you're like okay that's kind of cool but like that wouldn't hit me yeah. it's weird mm. how that stuff hits your brain and kind of yeah, messes you up but that's the imagery yeah, I'm talking about that's definitely about. an image that yeah. I don't think will I don't see ever leaving my brain I, I think about that all the time <laughs> even though I don't remember much of the movie I still think about that particular image totally and I, I think sometimes I think about that and I'm like what is that again like mm-hmm. what movie is that but it's such a good image and I do think that that's why yeah that, well, that's why when the monsters come I'm a little less into it because I, I just think that some of his best stuff is just the weird disorienting kind of camera tricks almost that's that's really when Carpenter is is kind of hitting his yeah, A game yeah, I agree. this is this is also very much um, a love letter to Lovecraft, if you will. Like, the amount of care and attention that was put into this. So even the titles of Sutter Kane's books are all references to um, to all of Lovecraft's novels as well. Like, uh, The Whisperer in the Dark, uh, Haunter Out of Time, are all, like, The Whisperer in Darkness, ha- Hunter, Haunter in the Dark, The Shadow Out of Time. Like, they're all, like, parallel And so it's kind of nice that they were throwing in, like, little Easter eggs, but they don't hit you in the face too hard unless, like, you're very familiar with Lovecraft. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in I, I think it's pretty obvious that uh Jurgen Pron Prokna? Uh Jurgen Prokna. From Das Boot. I believe, I believe that's his yeah. <laughs> the pronunciation. Yeah. Uh he's obviously playing some kind of fantasy version of HP Lovecraft, or at least how we all how we all mm-hmm. picture him as this wild haired lunatic writing in a church with bleeding sure. walls. <laughs> now i know we're all kind of going after the monsters but i do like the weird back of the head thing i think that thing is really cool oh sure the little that's like uh the return of the invaders from mars guy yeah one of those little creepy he's got we were very into that in the 80s the quato is kind of the same thing from (laughs) total recall just small creatures emerging from people's bodies got a quato Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's very interesting. And it's very interesting to cho- choose Jürgen Prock now. I think he's super good in it. But it's I'm kind of fascinated that for a movie about like this American stuff, there's both Jürgen Prock now and Wilhelm von Homburg. Oh my god, Vigo the, the Carpathian. Yeah, and it's his final role before he went totally uh-huh. crazy. Uh, if you have not read the story oh, on him, tell me. I actually don't uh, know the just story. Just Google. Oh, 
it's dark and twisted <laughs> okay. and long. I, w- I will say, I will suggest you, like our listeners, Google Wilhelm von Homburg. Fascinating guy. He was a, a famous uh, dandy boxer who was a very great boxer. But yeah, a lot of dark stuff in his past and apparently not a very pleasant person. Um, but uh, an interesting long read if you look him up. Uh, anyway, it's, I just, I'm kind of fascinated why, like, obviously they're two weird yeah. looking guys. <laughs> yeah. That's probably but the truth. Then my question but, uh, is why yeah. Charleston Hess, Charlton Hess, like he seems like why did charlton heston agree to this it's pretty late in his career too i don't know i think this was like an afternoon for him true true fly out to toronto i just have to do my j jonah jameson impersonation and then i can then i'm out i mean he's a he's a delight he gets it he he's he's so good in it i guess i mean i guess he's kind of a like an omega man (laughs) tip of the hat i don't know now, everybody out now, please. I need time with Mr. Trent. Uh, have Sylvia hold the calls and you get Lindy in here. Yes, sir. Yeah, that was great. I almost left myself. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down, please. This was also shot in Ontario, and Brendan, you've got a little bit on the location. Yeah, I don't know how interesting any of this will be to our non-Canadian or even specifically non-Ontario <laughs> listeners. But uh, there are people that get so excited with like, "Oh my God, I know where that is!" I do too. I I've spent a long time in Oxford, and anytime I see something shot in Oxford, I'm like, "I'm yeah. in there." Like, no, the uh, yeah. the location scouting in this is fantastic. I mean, uh, the mental hospital, of course, is the R.C. Harris water treatment plant, which is really just a perfect location. I don't even think they needed to dress it up at all it just looks like that um the uh oh the hobbs End bridge of course is the west montrose covered bridge which aka the kissing bridge does anybody know the story behind that mm. what is the kissing no. bridge? i think it's probably like most things i think it's <laughs> the origins are kind of gross like it's something about because it's a covered bridge and it gets dark when you go inside it's one of those like don't go in there with a man Make or out. he's gonna try to kiss you <laughs> <laughs> but what if I want him well, to kiss it can me? Be Should a I still go negative, there? I think. Uh, okay. But yeah, if you look joking. it up, it is like a beautiful place. It, it, it's it's just this beautiful covered bridge that like we just we don't have any of those anymore. Uh, so it's the it works so perfectly as the entrance to another world, essentially. Um, and then yeah, most of it is all filmed in uh, in Unionville around Markham area. There's. Now, that church is a real church that's in the middle yes, of nowhere. Yes, that is the Cathedral of the Transfiguration, and I believe that's in King City. Oh. Okay, if there hmm. is an end of the world, that is oh, where it's happening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like, King so City creepy. is also a strange, it's like a city that where it's kind of a normal small town, but everything is very yeah. spread out in a way that it's bizarre. Yeah. How, when did you go there, Cam? How do you know? Uh, about we shot this? films there. It's a great place to yeah. shoot, actually. King City. <laughs> I'll promote it. They gave us a great deal, uh, and yeah, uh, they got a great subway. <laughs> they treated us right. <laughs> You're looking know. for a real Fresh. sandwich artist. That's where go to King City. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Finally, uh, the last thing I kind of want to talk about here is about the soundtrack, because this is a departure from um, what you're usually hearing, especially in this era from John Carpenter, who, of course, did his own soundtrack. It's not the usual synth score. No, he really leaned into the metal. It's almost it reminds me a little bit of what David Lynch was doing in Wild at Heart. Like, it's just those like really Mm. heavy riffs um, that, yeah, I think kind of works because it doesn't it obviously doesn't look like his 80s films. Like it doesn't like it would be a weird soundtrack to put over the fog. But for this, because this does have like a completely different look and feel to his other movies, I do think this kind of works. I thought I will say that I fully thought that it was uh, Enter Sandman when (laughs) the movie started, which at least shows that he's was on message. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then, of course, we have the Carpenter's joke, which is 
hilarious and way too yeah. on the nose. I feel like that's, I mean, <laughs> going back to you saying that you love him screaming, I feel like that's one of the very first lines of dialogue in the movie. Him in his, <laughs> in his little uh, room screaming out, no, not the Carpenters, as what was the <laughs> song, We've Only yeah. Just Begun, plays? We've Only Clearly Just Begun. Clearly him. Yeah, which... Why do people not like the Carpenters? I get they're cheesy, but like, I mean, Karen Carpenter is a fucking badass, right? Like, I, I think just... we we have the benefit of distance <laughs> uh, from yeah. the Carpenters, <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps it, during its time, it was a little hard to swallow. Especially if you were someone going to see a movie like this, perhaps this would not be on your playlist. I understand. No. Okay, I know people have. Speaking variety. of that scene, I would also like to give a shout out to John Glover, who's a very underrated uh, '80s '90s, uh, just a real son of a bitch character that I, I've never understood why he doesn't right. have the legacy of like a William Atherton for being one of those like all-time like scum buckets from the '80s. Uh, it- <laughs> you know, the one thing I will give him is, and it's not a show that I necessarily would say run out and watch, but he was very good as like the the ultimate villain of the show. Uh, yeah, I... He was like Lex Luthor's evil father <laughs> who was worse than Lex Luthor. And that, he was I pretty mean, good. That would it. be the one thing that would convince me to watch Smallville. Uh, I will watch him play a bad guy in anything. <laughs> but yeah, he's, all, he's great in Gremlins too. Um, I think he's a, mm-hmm. he's a real scoundrel in Scrooge. Pretty much everything he's in, he's just a despicable <laughs> man. <laughs> More yeah. nihilism in the 80s in my horror movies <laughs> and character actors. Thank you very much. I think that's the perfect place to lead us into our next movie. So when we come back, we're going to look at a movie that posits that if you want to get laid, tell them about your damp ossuary. That's coming up after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As mentioned before, 1994 was not a great year for North American horror. The mainstream was revisiting Universal-style monsters with Wolf, Frankenstein, and Interview with the Vampire, and the direct-to-video market was wallowing in sequels with Pumpkinhead 2, Phantasm 3, Puppet Master 5, The Birds 2, really, and Cam, one I'm sure you've seen, Mirror Mirror 2, Raven Dance, <laughs> which I didn't even know there was a sequel to Mirror Mirror. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I have. It's I remember it being kind of charming, actually. Because okay, I like Mirror yeah. Mirror. I think it's one people really need to read. They're pretty dumb and weird. Yeah. yeah, but no, I remember liking two. <laughs> good. I'll have to look it it's up. Not like one is any good. So why? <laughs> why shit on two? 
exactly. Well, uh, the other movies that were kind of out and kind of making their rounds were Serial Mom and The Crow. They're both excellent and eclectic, but arguably are more violent satire and action movies, respectively. No, for one of the most innovative entries into the horror genre of, quite frankly, any year, you'd have to look to who else? The Italians. Della Morte Dell'Amour, or Cemetery Man as it was released in North America, directed by Michele Soavi, a protege of Dario Argento, and was loosely based on a novel of the same name, but actually has more relation to a comic book by the same author, Dylan Dog. We're going to get into that. And as I was watching, I couldn't help but think, this is something that my sister would really love. So I called her and I said, so it's an erotic black comedy zombie movie with a nihilistic bent, and she asked where she could watch it, and clearly we are related because this is a movie that is very much up my alley too. Brendan, how would you describe this little oddity, and what is it oh about? Oh boy, how much time do we have? <laughs> yeah, oh, half an hour. We have okay. a half hour. I think I, can, I think I can wrap it up in half an hour. Um, basically, this setup is Rupert Everett kind of plays this put-upon cemetery caretaker uh, that some people call him an engineer. Uh, he is tasked, I guess his main task, in addition to just, you know, upkeep, is re-killing the zombies, which they call returners, once they come back to life. Which is a great name I agree. for a zombie. Yeah. Returner's an awesome <laughs> name, yeah. Um, yeah, but the thing, the thing that I really, really love about this is that I guess we don't really have a lot of context. You don't know when he started, but clearly he's been doing this for a while. So it's gotten to the point where he really just, he gets no excitement out of doing this. And he kind of plays this as if he's like a corporate accountant that's been at the same agency for 40 years. So it's just kind of like a hassle. Like he always rolls his eyes when there's, you know, a banging at the door and a army of zombies kind of comes into his to his <laughs> sleeping quarters. And he just kind of rolls his eyes and gets out his gun and has to like shoot them one by one in the head and then goes back to, you know, putting together his skull puzzle or whatever he was doing at the time. Um, I call it zombie. Uh, yes, thank you. So that's kind of the setup. <laughs> it, <laughs> thank it, you. It morphs into something a little bit more sinister and kind of less fun, but I think we can kind of uh, start with that and then r reveal it organically as we as we go along. Because this is a film that is almost indescribable. Mm -hmm. Like so much happens and it shifts tones so yeah, I often. Tried my best. Um, no, 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 you did a great job. You did, for what it is, you did an excellent no, job. Yes. You set it up. Well, yeah, I think you shared the clip where Rupert Everett talks about it like a series of comic strips. And I think that's probably the best way to make sense of it. Because, yeah, it's like it's like it's nine yeah. different movies that and some of them just literally happen one mm -hmm. after the other. Some of them don't have much to do with yeah, the next some of them one. are like you well, blink and you miss should... like an entire feature film's worth of content. And then it's like, oh, and that's over. And now yeah. we're on to something else. Just so you know. But hey, here's yeah. the boobs. There you go. That's the one thing <laughs> so, that is consistent. I, is yes. the boobs. Yes. And decapitation. You're right there for both of them. Um, Cam, let's talk a little bit about where Rupert Everett was at this time, because this is kind of a weird point in his career. Yeah, especially uh, for North Americans, uh, they probably wouldn't have much of an idea who Rupert Everett was. Uh, Rupert Everett became famous in England first for this movie, Another Country, which doesn't get that much play here in Canada. Uh, it's it's a fairly early 80s queer film uh, with him and Colin Firth, 
Uh, hey really? to How everybody out queer, there. Is Colin Firth considered a queer icon? Because I know he's in um, that Tom Ford movie where he's... Um, <sighs> yeah, I mean, I guess. I think he's just... Uh, everybody loves Colin Firth. Uh, apparently, uh, him and Rupert Everett have a lot of bad blood because young Rupert Everett was a bit in love with him and treated him mm-hmm. poorly. Uh, Rupert Everett blames himself uh, for being a dick to Colin Firth <laughs> and they still have some sort of feud. Uh, so that really boosted his profile. Then, interestingly, Rupert Everett goes on to do a lot of films in Italy and France. Hmm. So he was quite big in Europe at the time. Um, and he is also uh, what I, you want to set up for me, uh, a pop star. <laughs> as, as you know, I love my uh, 80s uh, people becoming pop stars. So uh, he had a song called Generation of Loneliness. I suggest you look it up. It's a oh bit of a God. new wave hit because this is kind of late 80s. Uh, but yeah, of course, he, he, d- he didn't really cross over in North America till the late 90s. So this is, uh, this is before that. Um, but the interesting thing to know is this character Dylan Dog from the comic is visually based on Rupert Everett. It's drawn to look like Rupert Everett. So weirdly, when they were casting Delamore, Delamore, Michael Suave, it was like, well, we have to get Rupert Everett. <laughs> and Rupert Everett was not fa- like r- even Rupert Everett is like, uh, you know, he is weirdly famous in Italy because of Dylan Dog, yeah, almost more than the movies he did because he did one Italian movie and I think two pretty big French movies. Um, but yeah, he anyway, it's interesting that he has this 80s career that people might not know he, he existed before my best friend's wedding <laughs> and was relatively famous and this movie did like it should be said it was released in 94 in italy and in 96 in north america and it did huge in italy and people were so excited for Rupert Everett. And, and Anna Felci, the woman lead, was like, oh, my God, I'm acting with Rupert Everett. <laughs> like, she said that she, it was like her third movie and she couldn't believe she was with a celebrity like Rupert Everett. That's so funny. Well, I guess in Italy, anyone who has like a name outside of Italy is like, oh, my God. But, but I get it. It's like Jerry Lewis for the French, right? Oh, like, yeah. There's just an appeal. Uh, but I mean, it's also just like knowing this hermetically sealed, like like Anna Falci, she says she was famous because she appeared in an advertisement that was directed by Fellini and it was the last thing he ever directed. <clears throat> but she's like, that made her famous. Okay. She is so, like uh, yeah. that classic Italian beauty that's not Sophia Loren. Do you know Absolutely. what I mean? Like there's some, I mean, yeah. she's, she's an incredibly gorgeous woman, but she has that very like almost feline sort of yeah. quality mm-hmm. that we associate with Italian beauty. I mean, she looks a lot stunning. to me like the lady from Life Force oh, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, good call. Unearthly, yeah, sort it was of a look. very like yes, made which... a deal with the devil to look that beautiful kind of quality to her. <laughs> I, I just looked her up recently, and she still looks like she's like 26 years old, even today. Yeah. It's not fair. <laughs> same with that life force yeah. lady, too. It's weird. <laughs> they also both look exactly the same as they ever did. Well, it makes sense that she's playing these multiple characters. And, like, as I'm watching her play, like, and unfortunately, the character name is just she, which I fucking mm-hmm. hate because we're coming off of the passenger where it's just the girl, you know? So, like, <laughs> Italians, pick it up. Come well, on. Well, at least um, at this point, she is like nine different I was going to say, women. yeah. I, I also hate that, but it is true. There's so many different characters that in this context, I, I'm a little bit more forgiving. You get it. Yeah. It is. I- like very Joe versus the volcano yeah. for me though, <laughs> you know, where he keeps running into her in various yeah, iterations. Yeah. Man, what are we talking about Joe versus the volcano on this podcast? That's like uh, perfect. That's just you. <laughs> You've got Joe on the mind. Uh, I will say the other kind of fascinating thing with uh, with Anna Felci is number one, she was very briefly a model, but she hated it because she said that's like boring. Uh. She wasn't interested in it. So, and then the other thing is she considers this role great. She like still considers it one of her best roles. And and the funny thing, which is like a 
sick dig on the Italian film industry is you could tell that they people kind of asked her like, well, you know, there's a lot of sex and this is kind of a whatever role. She's like, it's still one of the best written roles for a woman I've ever yeah. been offered because <laughs> she's like yeah. she does so many do- she different plays things. More than just yeah, a victim, there's a lot which for her is, to do. Uh, you know, more than you can say for a lot of yeah. uh, Italian horror films and giallos. Character's a victim. The first character just gets bitten by her dead <laughs> husband and sure. then dies of fear. Just like, sorry, what? Oh, Dr. Vecchese, are you spying on us? No, I've drawn up the death certificate. Her heart stopped from fear. It wasn't the bite that killed her. She died while making, well, you know, doing it. But she eventually convinces him almost to cut his own dick off. So. <laughs> yes. that, oh, that's where this movie goes off the rails. That's like that's like <laughs> the reanimator part of yeah. the film. Like, it's very that's, weird. Yeah, that's yeah. the first part in the film that you're like, I'm sorry, what now? Like, where, where, where are we going with this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How can I? I mean, everybody knows that uh, I haven't got one. Ah, I see you. You have got one. Well, when would you uh, like me to relieve you of your uh, problem? No. And that's the part I remember so much. I, in this rewatch, like, this is a movie that I will say I have a long history with. I, for, for perhaps only for Brendan or Canadian fans of a certain vintage, I first saw this movie on the Showcase Drambuie oh, review yeah. uh, at night on yep, Showcase. I, m- I remember you used to play uh, it. And I loved it. And there was, like, a bunch of movies that were very hard to find that were on Showcase. Uh, this one, like, Francois was on sitcom. So I was always looking, and I eventually got this one on DVD. So I, uh, this was, like, a DVD I dined out on <laughs> for a while when it was very hard to find. Because this movie is, like, it's kind of fascinating. They say that even when it was released in Italy, there was very few mm-hmm. prints of it. And then, yeah, the American release was very small, and then the DVD release was kind of whatever, and it only recently came back again. So it's always a film that seems to barely kind of exist. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a fascinating one because I can watch it so many times, and I still don't. T- to me, I was like, I always, this time I was like, man, I really thought that that impotence part was like a, an hour of the film, <laughs> yeah. not, not like a five-minute aside. <laughs> It's very yeah. weird. It's very weird, but I think that's what makes it great is that, like, it just keeps surprising you, but not in a mm-hmm. way where you're like, oh, I'm out. In a way of, like, sorry, what's happening yeah. now? It's We recently watched Face Off for season three of the TV show, mm-hmm. which is coming up, and th- I had the same experience watching Face Off where, like, you can't question any of the weird shit that's happening because shit keeps yeah. happening. So you're like, sorry, what's happening? What's happening? What, yeah. what, what? And you, you just stay in it and stay in the vibe. And even though the tone is kind of, like, swinging between comic book and like hammer horror and like all these classic influences um it's still pretty straight and narrow nihilist grumpy yeah. which i kind yeah. of love but with a sense of humor yeah, absolutely there's really never a yeah. dull moment in it it always it's always moving and i think it does like even though it kind of jumps all all over the place in tone that like stream of the sense of humor it has the visual style and in kind of a weird way the romantic thread always kind of stays consistent through all of it and when I say romantic thread, you're just, talking about the one. Yeah. When I say romantic thread, I do want to specify not so much between Francesco and she, more between Francesco and Nyagi. Hundred percent. And Nyagi, I think, yeah. is one of my favorite henchman characters of all time. And I have to say that I'm a very big fan of any character that expresses affection oh. by vomiting. Like it's just <laughs> such an endearing moment. I, I, I love really you. love that scene. <laughs> it really is. And then it's she's a, so yeah, okay she with it. it. She's like, yeah, yeah. She loves it because she's a weird severed head. Yeah. <laughs> 
I will say that that's like I think a w- one weird sticking point if you're new to this movie is kind of sit out because at first uh, Nagi can seem a bit like a weird broad stereotype of like a mentally disabled person, but it's m- much more of like a weird fantasy archetype that is yeah it's very unusual but it kind of works by the end and the other thing to know is i think that this movie kind of suffers from a bit of a like don draper syndrome where the character delamorte delamore is meant to be a shit that is living his life wrong but he's so sexy yeah. and cool <laughs> that you're kind of like all right but it's like you're never supposed to think this guy no, is no, good no. And that's, uh, um, yeah and if you do at the beginning that opinion is definitely challenged midway yeah. through but that's that's what I think makes this different from an American film. Is that because he is an antihero, they would try to make him likable in yeah. some way. But he's no, not likable. He's a real and bastard. you actually No. And one of the reasons why you revel in terrible things happening to him is because he is a terrible yeah. person. Yeah. So there is that that affection for it that way. And Miyagi is kind of his like other half of like the the innocence and the sweetness where he just wants to hang out with a severed head. He doesn't want to do anything yeah. gross with it. No, and yeah. there's actually some complexities to Miyagi's character. Like he is actually like a very it's it's he's kind of a sweet guy. And uh, and there's also like an element of like it kind of just kind of dips into the fact that he's possibly like a savant of some kind, like some kind of like a secret genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that he sorry, what did you call the the skull puzzle? Yeah, the, it's the skull puzzle. <laughs> uh, in the way that when the, the whole movie. Uh, Francesco is trying to put together that puzzle and then there's that one moment where Niagi just kind of takes it and puts it together really quickly and then when Francesco comes in the room he goes oh and he quickly undoes it so that <laughs> Francesco can't see <laughs> there's like a little brief moment where you're like oh we could have that could have been another half hour of plot right there like what's going on there but then it was like nope just that one moment and then we're going to move on to something else I do like how upset he gets he's just like so turned off by people having sex in the graveyard he's like nope yeah, not yeah. for me see you later he's, he takes his work sl- like more yeah. seriously yeah. it's also also interesting to point out he he is also a celebrity of some ilk right, Francois Haji Lazaro yeah I, it's, it's so hard to make a through line between English music and French music but kind of like a mm-hmm. French punk huh. for this band called the Butcher Boys or Les Garçons Boucher uh, but you can look him up and he's it's quite fun he plays like you know he's he's playing like a hurdy gurdy yeah. while people yeah, a lot of like white music. t-shirts and suspenders <laughs> awesome. like that type of a band yeah there's a lot of this this movie that's kind of fascinating to me in terms of um, the way it looks because it's not made for a huge budget and a lot of Italian stuff like they do really amazing stuff with imagery and visuals like I mean look at anything Dario Argento does especially like Suspiria thinking of how little a budget Suspiria was made from and it's so um, so iconic in the look this is kind of sitting in the same thing and there's almost a Baron Munchausen-y sort of influence to it and I love that death animatronic oh, so great. much because there's something janky about it but just janky enough to be genuinely terrifying and fit in with everything. Stop killing the dead. They're mine. If you don't want the dead coming back to life, why don't you just kill the living? Shoot them in the head. Yeah, and I mean, Suave was an AD on Baron Munchausen, so maybe he even got the the same animatronic. It's hard to tell. Yeah, Suave's kind of a fascinating guy because he had a significant acting career 
you can see him in lots of movies like mm-hmm. demons and stuff he, and, and he also was a significant ad for a long time he actually didn't he kind of says that he was happy like he, he he thought he had reached his career peak when he was Dario Argento's assistant right. director. And he said he kind of didn't really need anything else beyond that. But Joe D'Amato asked him to do Stage Fright, which is kind of one of his more famous movies, The Owl with the Chainsaw, yeah. if you if you don't Excellent know off the top of your head. Uh, I'm looking Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then he kind of had, it's, it's very hard to, again, outside of the like hermetic seal of Italy in the early, late 80s, early 90s, it's hard to tell, but he was kind of considered like a second coming of horror. Uh, because he has these great movies, the 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 church and the sect. I really love the sect. Actually, if you like in the mountains, uh, in the mouth of madness, the sect is very close. Um, and yeah, so he's this kind of weird guy. But I think he learned so much from the cheap guys. Like Joe D'Amato got him to do stage fright because they had such a tight budget. And he's like, well, Suave's been around for all these other movies. You you do it. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. And then then he's kind of a fascinating guy because he said. Like, he's like, uh, once I did Cemetery Man, what else am I going to do? <laughs> he kind of hasn't done horror again because he's like, well, what's another, <laughs> what's left? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I had the zombie jumping out of the grave on a motorbike. What <laughs> yeah, more that, do that you really want from And I think, and I think those career. visuals are part of it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, the, and I think, yeah, visually it's so crazy. I also, I'm super into... Uh, there aren't a lot of Italian comic adaptations, mm. uh, even in Italian film. Um and that, that so it's kind of interesting there was of course a kind of terrible dylan dog adaptation with brandon routh uh but um yeah there, there's italian comics especially italian horror comics have a very specific style part of the problem is they're essentially pornographic um i i recommend slash don't recommend buyer beware not safe for work uh there's a blog called the groovy age of horror where a guy translates a lot of uh italian horror comics from the 60s and 70s and you can kind of get the idea but like diabolique is a italian comic like there's a handful of them but this is the closest that gets to it because it has the weird erotic elements. Um, but it has the nice thing is it has the humor uh, that was in Dylan Dog. But yeah, man, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, this all came from you talking about the visuals. I don't know what else to say. The visuals are great. They yeah, really hold I mean, up. And uh, I actually did look into like, because the cinematography really de- did strike me. Um, it's shot by someone named Moro Marchetti, I believe who really doesn't have many credits on his name as a cinematographer, but he was a camera operator for Apocalypse Now, Last Emperor, and Popeye. Oh. So he obviously really? knows his knows his way around a camera. <laughs> it, just yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder this looks as gorgeous yeah. as it does and is like bleak but rich simultaneously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. And I also think that there's like definitely a level of satire yeah. that I think flies over my head. Oh, for to sure. be fair, because it's like you know they're like Nyagi's watching Gulf War footage <laughs> at one point, and like obviously there's some twisted like Italian bureaucrats, like the weird mayor who just wants to use his daughter's corpse as like a photo <laughs> opportunity. So there's obviously more going on if I was Italian in 1994, sure. probably. Now, my question for you guys is this was, of course, released under the name um, Cemetery Man, which is definitely not as good as Della Morte Della More. Like that's just like the, the death of love or lo- death and love or however you want to translate it. It's much better. Um, and Rupert Everett, when he became a big name after My Best Friend's Wedding, was trying trying to get an American remake made of this. And 
I don't know if this could ever really be translated for a wide American audience. I think it's so unique. Yeah, I can't see it working if it was made for like in North America. That would be that seems like a tough one. There's definitely they'd have to pare down a lot of content. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I. It's also in English. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> like they should have just tried to get a better release <laughs> yeah. for it. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by that. And and it's I think it's nice to know he, that he really loves this movie, too. Like Rupert Everett is very proud of this yeah. movie. Um, I think he wanted yeah, to continue, like not just make it do a remake, but his idea was to keep it going and make this into like a franchise. And uh, like he was kind of more passionate about they, it than, than the director was in a lot of ways, I think. <laughs> Yeah, they still mm-hmm. talk about it. The Suave's talked about it a bit. Suave had a like a personal tragedy where his son was mm-hmm. quite sick and he mm-hmm. kind of disappeared from filmmaking for a while and now does TV. But yeah, I always wonder because you kind of could, but also I guess I don't know how do you how do you continue the story <laughs> kind of <laughs> and uh, it, with an ending, yeah. you know. It's them trying to escape, right? This is the the great escape. It's Cemetery yeah, Man too. The just great come escape. Back. They're like escape, um, okay. escape the snow globe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We talked about how In the Mouth of Madness was kind of considered by most, by many people the last great uh, John Carpenter film. I think in a lot of ways this is considered the last great Italian horror film. Um, and this is kind of like the last hurrah before a lot of these directors kind of moved away from film and kind of went to television. Uh, and I guess this couldn't compete with North American releases. I, I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it was kind of, this was kind of the the last uh the last big hurrah of uh, of italian horror you're totally right and i n- have never understood why yeah it's like, it's like dario argento got hit in the head with a rock and stopped That's knowing how thing. to make like, movies none of these guys like he definitely didn't stop making movies he still watch it he no, still makes he a, an unwatchable film but, uh, every year it seems like yeah and then we try yeah. to just like recreate them, like the the Suspiria remake, right? So it's like, okay, we're not financing new innovative ways, but it yeah. is nice to see how like a lot of these have kind of influenced stuff. Like this is definitely an influence on Shaun of the Dead. Like it's got to be. Mm-hmm. And and you know that like it's interesting that you uh, I, I read a Carpenter interview where he was talking about uh, Suspiria versus weirdly uh in the mouth of madness and he, and he brought up the, just that like that the, the italians dream their horror movies and he can't do that so he was like he was kind of comparing the more traditional script of in the mouth of madness to italian horror and he, he just said that he couldn't he doesn't know how to do it i i've never i've never heard that before that italians dream their horror but oh my god did that just click for me and make my brain sure. kind of hurt i was like yeah because every single one of them that i like has that like yeah. super ethereal quality where like it just kind of dream logic shifts from one event to another yeah and i mean the it was it was a great talking point uh by luca guadagnino when he remade suspiria i didn't like the remake of suspiria that much but he he said he was not remaking suspiria he was trying to film the nightmares he had after he watched suspiria <laughs> which is like that's a great that's a great uh little turn how of does that get <laughs> witch orgy. The bloody witch orgy <laughs> i know but also how does it not be yeah. scarier come on man. if it was any other director um, he would walk into a studio meeting say that and they would say sir we're calling security <laughs> yeah, exactly. Have you won an Oscar, Brendan? Have you I have won not. an Oscar? Yeah. <laughs> I obviously don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> From what I understand, that is your golden statue ticket to mm-hmm. making whatever weird shit you want to make. <laughs> yeah, I just want to mention that uh, 
to point out is that Tangerine Dream was actually supposed to do the music for this, but had to drop out. I think it was just scheduling conflicts, but it definitely adds to a great, <laughs> yeah. like, what if. I mean, I, I love the music in this a lot, uh, but, I mean, nothing's better than a Tangerine ooh, Dream store, right? Like, imagine how much this would have been elevated. Like, I, I already think this is close to being a perfect film to me, but uh, I think with a Tangerine Dream score, my goodness, uh, that would have been something else. <laughs> yeah. I actually feel like the the soundtrack, and I, it's probably not the fault of the movie, but it's the fault of uh, a decades of full moon features having that kind of like, yeah. dear, 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 dear. <laughs> like I <laughs> I I kind of hate it, and it sucks to know. But yeah, I love that. I also was looking at the Tangerine Dream thing, and the closest I got was they dropped out because something yeah, else came up. <laughs> that, was, that was where my research began. Like a and euphemism. Ended. Yeah. Creative differences is what we're looking mm. at there. And with creative differences, we will end our episode for this week. So once again, I want to thank Cam Maitland for joining us for some serious weirdness. Well, thank you. I'm always here for serious weirdness. <laughs> I know you are. You're my serious weirdness tour 1998. And Brendan Ross, thank you yeah, so much. Thank you for, uh, you know, inspiring me to watch two movies in a row of depressing jobs that are made to seem <laughs> weirdly cool. <laughs> Now, you do not have a depressing job, but it is weirdly cool. Tell people how they can find you on oh, your work. Oh, I don't know. Uh, just, you know, uh, just go to uh, Toronto and ask around for me. Somebody will know. <laughs> <laughs> Social media at all? Do you find yourselves on any sort of room that possibly people can chat uh, no, in? No, you can look up uh, Neon Dreams is on uh, Instagram. Sometimes uh, during the pandemic while theaters are closed, we are occasionally doing online screenings that are a lot of fun so follow neon dream cinema on instagram for updates and uh yeah like i said just ask around fantastic yeah uh, please check it out it's really great especially the neon streams lots of fun that you can have on your own couch until we can get back into theaters and you can join us next week as we go full camp in 2000 and we're going to be joined by comedian steph malik as we look at some unconventional queer classics in cecil be demented and but i'm a cheerleader Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Want to chat with us and find more great content from Hollywood Suite? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Today's guests were Cameron Maitland and Brendan Ross. Supervising producer is Ryan Mates. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next time. <laughs>